1866, Robert Louis Stevenson published a short little novel called The Curious or Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It begins with the criminal on the loose named Mr. Hyde who had assaulted a young girl. The girl's family is paid off, though, by a, a wealthy gentleman named Dr. Jekyll. A lawyer named Mr. Utterson investigates, and he finds that Hyde frequently is found leaving the, the laboratory at the back of Dr. Jekyll's house. Utterson encounters Hyde one time, and he's a disfigured man, but Jekyll tells him not to worry about him any longer. Sometime later, though, another crime is committed. Mr. Hyde has witnessed beating to death an old man who happened to be a member of parliament. Hyde cannot be found, though, and Jekyll says he has had no contact with Hyde for some time. After this, though, Jekyll shuts himself away in his laboratory, and he hasn't been seen. He refuses visitors. Out of concern, Jekyll's butler confides in Utterson, saying he hasn't seen Jekyll in two weeks, but strange voices are coming from his laboratory. The two of them decide to break into Jekyll's laboratory, and there they find the body of Mr. Hyde, dead, but he's wearing Dr. Jekyll's lab coat. Hyde had died of suicide, but he has in his hand a letter from Dr. Jekyll to Utterson that promises to explain everything. In the letter, Jekyll reveals how he wanted to separate his good side from his dark desires. So he found a way to transform himself into a deformed monster, free from the shackles of conscience, a creature of pure desire, Mr. Hyde. He was delighted in becoming Mr. Hyde at first because he enjoyed this complete moral freedom. But over time, he started turning into Mr. Hyde involuntarily, apart from the potion he had devised. And so he determined to stop transforming, but he couldn't. It was in such a state as Mr. Hyde that he had killed the old man. And eventually, Jekyll started transforming into Hyde, even without the, por the potion. Jekyll devised another potion to reverse the transformation, but he ran out. And he knew that he was going to transform into Mr. Hyde permanently, and it couldn't be stopped. And so he wrote this letter, knowing it would be his final words as Dr. Jekyll. And thereafter, he transformed into Hyde one last time and then killed himself. Now, as soon as this little short story was published, it became an instant classic and also an instant symbol of a person with a split personality. And ever since, it's very common to refer to someone who has a good side, but also a dark side, uh, as a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What's interesting, though, is that this is also quite a fitting depiction of the Christian life. I know it may sound a little cliche, but this story serves as a perfect picture of the Christian life because the Christian life can be in many ways just as schizophrenic. It's like there are two of us now, split personalities, one good, one bad. Now, I'll explain a little bit. You know, before salvation, the Bible says that we are totally depraved, thoroughly wicked and sinful. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it just means every part of us is corrupt. Our heart, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our tongue. We're not concerned with the will of God or the glory of God at all. But coming to Christ, though, as you see your sin before a holy God and you cry out to Christ in faith for forgiveness, he grants you forgiveness and more. 
He also brings new life. And the Bible calls that regeneration or new birth. And there you're given new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new heart to love, a new mind to believe, and a new tongue to speak. Now, we're not talking about a literal new birth here, but a spiritual new birth. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. A new self is born, featuring a new heart that's no longer enslaved to sin, but now lives for the glory of God. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you should know what I'm talking about. You should be able to testify of this new self that's in you. Coming to faith, you experience new desires. You want to follow Christ. You want to serve him. You want to worship him. In your new self, no longer do you want to live in the darkness of sin. You desire to turn from your old ways and walk in the newness of life. And this is the fruit that comes from being born anew. And it's a miracle of God's grace. But here's the thing. The newness that we have in salvation, it's, it's partial. It's only partial. Meaning it's not complete and it will not be made complete until the resurrection, the Bible says. That's when the, this newness of ours is extended even to our bodies, right? The Bible speaks of this as glorification. It's the day we are raised physically and given even glorified bodies, And so, only then will our newness and salvation be 100% complete. And for now, though, we're made new in spirit. Our inner man is alive, but our outer man is what? Decaying. In salvation, our bodies remain unchanged. They're still cursed. They're still corrupt. They're still dying. And this includes a level of corruption in the desires of our flesh, That sin still dwells within us. And the Bible calls this the place of residence of sin within us the flesh. And it's not talking about our literal bodies, but in some way it's vitally connected to our literal bodies. And so even after salvation, we have new desires, but we still have this remaining sin and remaining sinful desires. And that it can lead us to do wrong. So if you're a Christian, you know this experience as well. You want to do what is right. You want to follow God. But sometimes you don't. You still have sinful desires in your heart. And and sometimes you give in to them. And that leads you to sin. The Bible reveals all this. This is not a surprise. We actually find confirmed this sense of duality or double-mindedness in the Christian life. It's like now there are two of us within us, one good, one bad, one redeemed, one unredeemed, a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. And until our redemption is made complete, this is a built-in inconsistency in the Christian life. God, for now, leaves us in this condition on purpose. Coming to Christ, God frees us from the penalty of sin but not yet the presence of sin. God does not yet fully eradicate sin's presence in our heart. And he does so because he's glorified as we overcome sin and grow to obey his will in this life. That God has a plan in this. 
But for us, though, it leaves us to kind of live out and, and live through this inconsistency, this, this internal war within. And so often we find ourselves just kind of crying out like Paul does in Romans 7, 21 and following, where he says, I find then the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This should resonate with you as a depiction of the internal struggle of the Christian life. We have new life in Christ with new desires, but we're still sinners with sinful desires. And God's plan then is that we would use the resources he has given us in Christ to overcome, to grow, to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires and to walk by the spirit. And this God is glorified. So this is the process then of spiritual growth. And all Christians need to know, become experts in the process of spiritual growth. This should be like Christianity 101. And Paul references it in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, where he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, the reason is because this internal struggle between sin and righteousness comes to a head in the area of speech. This Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde duality, the conflict between the new self and the old self, it finds its greatest expression in the tongue, in how we speak. In other words, there's no other place where our double-mindedness as Christians is more apparent than in our speech. Our speech is constantly betraying that there's still some sin left inside of us because it just comes out. And as it stumbles us and takes us down, it can lead to real ruin and hardship in life. And so this inherent inconsistency within us is a real problem. So, This should also resonate with you. Is it your experience that you want to honor God in your speech, but sometimes you don't? If that's the case, wouldn't you want to learn more about that? Wouldn't you want to understand why that is? Why you have this problem and then how to overcome, how to grow? Well, I hope so, and it's to this end that we'll be studying this morning James chapter 3. So you can turn there now, once again, to James chapter 3. If you'd like to follow along, turn your Bibles to James 3. In his letter, James has much to say about the inherent double-mindedness of the Christian life. And this is all the more the case in chapter 3, where he writes to expose this huge inconsistency in the area of speech. If you were to follow any Christian around for long enough, you would eventually hear some speech come out 
that is not quite consistent with their faith in Christ. So, you know, what do we make of this? What are we to do about this? Without excusing it, James confirms this duality and that it's an expected part of the Christian experience. It shouldn't be this way, though, and so we're meant to grow and to overcome. So James writes here in chapter 3, first and foremost, to just call attention to this sin area in our lives. He aims to call it out, shine a light on it, that we might come to terms with this internal inconsistency. The way we talk, it's more than a little problem that we have, and it can do a lot of damage. And so in verses 3 through 8, we covered last time, James focuses on the power of the tongue, the danger of the tongue, and the liability of the tongue. Like a rudder on a ship, the tongue is small, but it, it can completely control us and direct us. But the tongue is also like a forest fire where it can, it can spread into a, an inferno of destruction. The tongue is a huge liability. It's like a wild animal waiting to break out. And when it gets out, it's usually for the worse. This tongue of ours is a real problem. And to make matters worse, James says in verse 8 that no one can tame the tongue. You'll never get a full handle, a full control over your tongue. Remember, he's writing to Christians, but he says this in verse 8. He says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's like he said back in verse 2 from a couple weeks ago. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. But the thing is, we're not the perfect man. Not yet, not until glory. Hence, this problem we have. And so we asked last week, what are we supposed to do with this teaching? It can seem, you know, kind of discouraging, kind of depressing. It's not meant to be, though. There's a tension here that is resolved later in the letter. But relief comes when you turn to Christ. And that's the ultimate answer. Because what sin area highlights more our need for Christ than speech? I mean, Jesus, he's the only one that can offer you forgiveness for all of your sins of speech. We need that. And he also brings transformation. With the gift of salvation comes, like we talked about, new birth, a new heart, a new tongue. He enables us to now use our speech for good and for God's glory, and we need that too. But as we said, even after salvation, even after the new birth, we're still not done yet in this life. We still wrestle with sin, and that includes speech, gossip, criticism, coarse humor, boasting, slander, swearing, complaining, lying, just a short list. Do any of these ring a bell? I mean, what sins of the tongue stumble you? And so still we ask, what are we to do about this problem? We're going to try and answer that today. Now, hopefully with some practical help for the same God who worked by his grace to transform the tongue in salvation. He also gives us his power to enable us to reform the tongue in sanctification. And we need to learn about that. 
And so our, our game plan for this morning is, is pretty simple. We want to start and just first go through verses 9 through 12. Just finish off this section on the tongue and, and hear what James has to say. And there we're going to find James further exposing the inconsistency of the tongue. And then after that, I want to bring in some help from other scripture to, to show how we can overcome this sin area, how we can grow in Christ-likeness in our speech. And we need to learn that as well. So to begin, let's just start by turning our attention to James 3.9 to start. Really just picking up where we left off from last time. We've seen from James so far the power of the tongue, the danger of the tongue, the liability of the tongue. And we can add to that now the inconsistency of the tongue. Verses 9 through 12. The inconsistency of the tongue. After saying no one can tame the tongue in verse 8, James goes on to reveal the the utter inconsistency of our speech. And look at verse 9. Speaking of our tongue, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Before salvation, before, before coming to Christ, you never used your tongue to bless God. Maybe you thought you did, but you didn't. Living in rebellion against him, even if you were pretending to be religious, any words of praise coming from your mouth fell on deaf ears. We were at enmity with God. But in coming to Christ by his grace, God has loosed our lips, and now we can truly praise him. And isn't this one of the main reasons he created us and saved us to now declare his praise? You see this fact reflected in the Old Testament, notably the Psalms, where you see the redeemed of Israel singing God's praises. And Psalm after Psalm is one example after another of the tongue being used to bless God, to worship him. I mean, is that not the supreme use of speech? Like the gift of speech that God has given us. The greatest way you can use that gift is to praise him, to, to give it back to him. He gave you breath. He gave you lips. He gave you, gave you a tongue. The best way you can use those is to, to give it back and to, to praise him. And perhaps this is why so often when the Bible speaks of heaven, it pictures all creatures using their tongues to do just that, to exalt God. God is worthy of such praise. And the church is supposed to be a community where the redeemed come together and use their tongues to praise God. But this doesn't always happen. As James testifies, and as surely you can testify, Sometimes we use our tongues to curse others. And it's curse here speaks of wishing evil on others. You may have never invoked a formal curse on someone else. I hope you have never invoked a formal curse on someone else. I think that might be an Italian thing. My Italian grandma, she spoke of curses all the time and the evil eye. And some Italians wear a little amulet to protect against those types of curses. 
But even if you've never cursed someone like that, just think of all the, the destructive and hurtful speech that has come out of your mouth. Most often we think of the ways other people have hurt us with their speech. And that may be fair, but just spend a little time reflecting on yourself. And you'll quickly realize that you dish it out plenty yourself. And such evil speech hurts others and it dishonors God for, he says, all people have been made in the likeness of God. God made all humans in his image, reflecting his likeness. And even after the fall, though it's marred, the image of God still remains. And therefore, each person has an inherent value or worth before God. So when you speak evil of someone, and you curse someone, you're speaking evil of God's finest handiwork, and you don't have the right to do that. So evil speech, it's a serious sin that hurts others and dishonors God. But such is the inconsistency of the tongue and the Christian experience. As he says in verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And that's the issue here. We expect cursing and evil speech to come from the mouths of unbelievers. That used to be us. That used to be all that came from our lips. Evil speech was the norm. And in contrast, we expect blessing to come from the mouths of believers. Those who claim to be worshipers of God, they should be characterized by such worshipful speech. But the rub comes when the same mouth produces blessing and cursing. Using a very strong negative in the Greek, James says, these things ought not be this way. That this shouldn't happen. But it does. Even the most godly and mature believers at times give way to this inconsistency. And don't forget, like we pointed out last week, James is still including himself here in this indictment. He uses we. He too has partaken in blessing God with his tongue, but at times speaking evil of others. You know, at church or maybe at a Christian gathering, I bet most of you are very skilled in Christian speech. You know, all the religious lingo or Christianese, as some might call it, you pray before a meal, you quote scripture, you sing songs of praise. When someone gives a, an encouraging story, you say, praise God. You sound like a Christian. You talk like a Christian. And, and that's fine. That's good. But elsewhere, your tongue can look a little different. At home, you are harsh and critical. At the office, you ridicule and gossip. At the gym, you laugh at the crudest of humor. Around your non-Christian friends, you swear. Around your non-Christian family, you malign. Just as you are skilled in Christian speech in certain times and certain places. So you and I are skilled in ungodly speech in certain times and places. Ours can be a forked tongue. And James carries on now with another triad of examples to illustrate this point, this inconsistency within. Verse 11, he says, first, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? You know, in the ancient world, 
What was the number one factor that determined the location of, of a new city? It was fresh water, access to fresh water. Especially in Palestine where the climate is dry and arid. If there's no spring of fresh water, there's no life. And so you look at all these ancient cities on the map and you find they all have one thing in common. They were all built on top of a freshwater spring or a water source. And that makes perfect sense. You also understand how devastating it would be for an ancient city if their water source was spoiled. I mean, what if that one spring the whole town relied on all of a sudden became bitter? It would spell the end of that settlement. But thankfully, that never really happened. Springs were known for their consistency. They pretty much pumped out the same water, the same temperature, the same flow, mostly year-round. And the point James is making is fountains, they're consistent. I mean, it would be ludicrous and disastrous for a freshwater spring to all of a sudden pump out bitter water. But what does that say about us? Because... We're not like that. That's not what our tongue is like. Also, he says in verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Figs, olives, grapes, those happen to be the three main products of Palestine. And again, they were all known for their consistency there. They perfectly fit that climate. You can just imagine the confusion of a farmer, though, who you know, planted a row of grapevines, only to find them at harvest time producing olives. Or you go to shake down an olive tree and a bunch of figs come down. Like, what would you, what would you do? What would you make of such a tree? Or what would you do with such an inconsistent, unreliable tree? But the point is, what are we to do with such an inconsistent and unreliable tongue? Some days, the fruit of righteousness comes from our lips, but other days, the fruit of unrighteousness comes from our lips. And so James finishes by no longer questioning, but just straightforwardly asserting the end of verse 12. He says, nor can salt water produce fresh. A third example. You drink from the ocean, you're going to get one thing and one thing only, and that's salt water. There's no changing that. It's a picture of utter consistency. And so altogether, James is making the same point. He's telling us what ought to be. Having come to Christ, you know what ought to come from your mouth? Blessing. You know, words of blessing. We ought to be using our tongues to praise God and to edify others 24 7. We ought to be using this great endowment of speech for the glory of God and the good of others all the time. That ought to be consistently all the time. But that's not the case. What ought to be is not what is. And we are instead a walking contradiction. We're the fresh spring that sometimes puts out bitter water. And we're the good tree that sometimes bears bad fruit. And with this indictment, James ends. He finishes this section on the tongue. And he leaves us for now with this tension between what ought to be and what is. We know how it should be as believers, as followers of Christ. But we also know 
we're sinners and we stumble, we fall short. And so when James says, my brethren, these things ought not be this way within us, we, we give a hearty amen. Like we know that we feel that we feel that inconsistency. We know better, but it shouldn't be this way, but it is. And this teaching, this whole section on the tongue, it's, it's produced or rather it's meant to produce conviction, a type of sanctified discontentment where you're not happy with the way things are. We see the remaining sin in our lives and in our speech, and we, we want to see it gone. And I hope between last week and this week, you've received some of that conviction from James. I hope you've welcomed it into your heart because God uses such conviction to, in turn, produce change. Now, James finishes here, though, and we could leave it at that. We could just leave this discussion at the stage of conviction and just hope it, in your life it turns into change. That's what James does for now. He doesn't press on this conviction and resolve this tension until chapter 4. But, you know, we're setting this verse by verse really slow, and I don't want to let the moment pass by, a moment of conviction. And so I wanted to make sure to save some time at the end to help you, to instruct you, and to remind you how you take conviction and turn it into change. So how does spiritual growth result from all that we've learned about the tongue here in James 3? I want you to be reminded of this, that you might grow, and that you might take all this teaching on the tongue from James and turn it into change. You know, again, I, I trust you get it by now. I hope you get it. James 3, the tongue is bad. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is poison. The tongue is evil. The tongue is inconsistent. The tongue is a big problem. And not just other people's tongues, but your tongue. You and I produce sinful speech far too often. I, I hope you're convicted by that. And all this just reflects on your heart, on what's on the inside. And so now we ask, so what do we do about it? How, how can you change? Do you want to change? How can you change? Well, let's be reminded. We'll sh shift gears a little bit. Let me have you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I don't really want to steal the thunder of James chapter 4 because we'll be there in just a few weeks. But we're safe to steal the thunder of Ephesians chapter 4. So let's do that. The ultimate solution to the problem of the tongue is salvation. True conversion. That's what we pointed out last week. And apart from Christ, there's no hope here. There's only condemnation because you and I, we have sinned against God. And in all areas, especially speech and without Christ, there, there's only judgment. Remember what Christ himself said. You can listen to Matthew 12, 33 through 37. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He's talking to Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure that which is good. 
And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And as Christ teaches, and as we learned, speech, it's merely a window into your heart. It reveals what's inside, and therefore it reveals indwelling sin. And ultimately, the only cure for that is a new heart. It reveals you have a rotten heart, a wicked, depraved heart. You need a new one. And the only solution there is regeneration, where God, through your faith in Christ, will give you a new heart and a new tongue thereafter. And so we've covered that, but that's not all though. For although new life is given to us in Christ, remember that new life starts off in in kind of baby form or sapling form. Jesus takes the bad tree, that's us, and by his power, he transforms it into a good tree. That's us after salvation, but that tree starts off as a little tiny sapling. And so now this new life within us, it needs to grow to bear fruit. And God has designed a process by which it will grow and bear fruit, by which we overcome the remaining sin in our lives. And God is glorified as we engage in this process. And that process will be finished by God in the next life in glorification. He'll finish that. But it's our mission right now to partake in it. And this process of growth, it's kind of neatly summarized in Ephesians 4. And here Paul, he's speaking to those who once were spiritually dead, but they've been made alive by grace through faith. And now in chapter 4, he's instructing such people who are called by God to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. We are made perfect in Christ, but we don't walk perfectly yet. And so he exhorts us and instructs us to do so. The Holy Spirit is introduced here in chapter 4. And that's the X factor in this discussion on spiritual growth. God has not left us without help. The same Spirit of God who transformed our lives in salvation now fills us and empowers us and enables us to reform our lives in sanctification. And make no mistake, that is God's plan for us now. And so let's read, look at Ephesians 4, verse 11, a familiar word or verse, but look at verse 11. It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, you know these verses well, that God gave to the church leaders to equip the saints to the building up of the body. But to what end is that? Verse 13, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so God's aim here is that we all would grow in unity, in knowledge, and in maturity. We are all to progressively reflect Christ's image. And of course, that goes with our speech. Like he says down in verse 15, 
He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Christ is our savior and he's also our standard. God saved us that we might be like him. And already you can see how vital the truth of God is to our growth. He says we are to use our tongues to speak the truth in love. And that's the means by which we're going to grow up in Christ's image. The truth of God, that's the, the fuel for spiritual growth. It's the milk by which God's little children grow up. You remember the old slogan, you know, milk does the body good. It's very true spiritually where the milk of God's word, it does the body of Christ pretty good. And with this foundation, Paul goes on to exhort us later to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. That used to be how we walked. He says in the futility of our mind, darkened in understanding, thoroughly lost, depraved, carried away into every sin. That used to characterize us, but look at verse 20. There's a big passage now. He says, but you do not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's another passage we've seen before, but that's good. It's a critical passage. And it captures a little snapshot of spiritual growth. What happened in Christ when you turned to Christ, when you came to believe? By his grace, he says, we laid aside the old self. That means we took our former manner of life and we turned our backs on it. We forsook our former way. We died to the old self, which is being corrupted by all those lusts of deceit. Before salvation, our hearts knew nothing but these evil desires. And that led to our demise. But by God's grace, we repented and we just turned away from all that was in our old life. And instead, he says, we have put on the new self. We've come to new life in Christ. We're born again. We have a new master, a new purpose, a new identity, a new self has been remade into the likeness of God. These are all salvation realities, meaning these things all took place in salvation. We have put off the old self. We have put on the new self. Not talking about perfection, but direction. We follow Jesus now. The bad tree has been made good. There's just one problem though. Verse 22, those pesky little lusts of deceit from the old self, they have a way of just hanging around. And so within us, though we've been made new, though we've put on the new self, within us still remains some oldness, some indwelling sin. As Jesus said, out of the mouth come the thoughts of the heart. And so as a believer now, as you continue to sin in your speech, you're revealing that there's still some sin living inside of you, 
some sinful desires. And that's the whole inconsistency we were talking about. This is why we must be told to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is why we have to be told to no longer walk as the Gentiles. This is why we have to be told the tongue is a restless evil. But here, though, Paul hits at how we can overcome. And the main command in it all comes in verse 23. Did you see it? The main command here, verse 23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We used to live in the futility of mind, but now we're being called to renew our mind. Now, at this point, mind and heart overlap as symbols for the inner man, that new self. And so that new self, that little sapling of new life, it needs to grow. It needs to be renewed daily. And that renewal is going to happen as you fill your mind with what? The truth. It's no coincidence that over and over in Ephesians 4, Paul keeps talking about the truth. Because the truth is the fuel for the mind's renewal. And scripture consistently teaches this fact that we grow in our newness as we saturate our minds with the truth of God's word. Like 1 Peter 2, 2, which says like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. You're already saved. You're a little baby now. You want to grow? Well, you need to long for and drink the pure milk of the word. Or Romans 12 too, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. And Jesus himself prayed this for his disciples. John 17, 17. He's praying to God. He says, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And just think about that. It's Christ praying for his future disciples. He knows they will be saved, but they will still be sinners. They will need to be sanctified, made more like him. And so he prays for their growth. And how's that growth going to come about? Sanctify them, grow them in the truth. And your word is truth. And it's a common image. I've used it, you know, several times, but just picture a little tree. You go to the store, you buy a little sapling fruit tree. You want it to grow. You want it to bear fruit in your backyard. And you can't actually make the tree grow. It's not in your power, but you can control the food. So you have two bags in your garage. One is labeled fertilizer. The other herbicide. One is food designed to nurture the tree. The other is poison designed to kill the tree. So if you want the tree to grow, it's a real hard question here. So it's going to challenge you. Which bag should you feed the tree? Uh, a little hint, it's, it's the fertilizer. <laughs> you know, good food in, good fruit out. Bad food in, bad fruit out. It's really simple. And God designed our spiritual growth to be the same way. It's actually way simpler than you might think. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, we have. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he says, set your mind on things above, 
not on the things that are on the earth. You see, renew your mind. Again, the mind is used synonymously here with the heart, the inner person. And as your new self is filled with the truth of God's word, the spirit is going to use that food to grow us. And he will cause us to bear fruit, the fruit of the spirit. This shouldn't be new to you. In fact, I think we covered it in James a couple months ago. But that's good. I want these the same old simple truths of how to grow to be burned into your mind. Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind with the truth of the word. That's God's simple design for your spiritual growth in all areas. Now, if you get all that, and we can just simply apply this now to speech. To speech. We've already learned your speech is merely a reflection of your heart, of what's going on on the inside. And so look, if, you're, if your heart, if your mind is being filled with garbage, if you are daily being influenced by the ways of the world, the lusts of the world, the desires of the world, what do you think is going to come out? If your mind is being flooded with the world, which is still darkened in understanding, is it really so surprising that the speech of the world is coming out of your mouth? I mean, it's going into your mind. It's filling up your heart. That's just piping out to your mouth. Like, what do you expect? But if you're feeding your mind good food, if you're letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you, if you're setting your mind on things above, if you're saturating your heart with the truth, What's going to come out? Words of grace. Like he says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And what will be the result of that? Those who let the word of Christ richly dwell within them. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The only people to, who do that are those who, who heart, whose hearts are, are filled with the word of Christ. This is the fruit of lips that are drawing from a heart that is filled with the truth. Look, before our glory, we are double-minded. Just the, the simple fact of it is, we are easily carried away by the flesh. So James must convict us of sinful speech, areas we we still need to grow. Paul must exhort us to put it away, to turn aside. Like he does down in verse 25, if you're still in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Just put off your lies, put on uh, honest speech. Or verse 29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We need these reminders. We need these exhortations. Do unwholesome words ever proceed from your mouth? Uh, Yeah, yeah, they do. Would you rather only words of edification came out instead? Yes. So be convicted and then transform that into real change by committing to just flood your mind with the truth. And God will use that to make you grow. 
The sins of the tongue, they cut down our witness. They impede our testimony. They hurt others. They malign God. And my brethren, these things ought not be this way. And so let it be your resolve to draw near to God through his word, to let his truth continually fill your heart and renew your mind that you might bear the fruit of renewed speech. You just have to import the truth into the soil of your mind all the time and then watch the spirit do his work of conforming you into Christ's image. And by God's continual grace, you'll grow. You will grow. You will overcome. And thankfully, our inconsistency won't last forever. If you endure, the day will come, as Paul said in Romans 8, 11, where the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That day will come when we will finally be freed from the body of death. We'll be given new bodies with new tongues that will only be used for one purpose. That's to praise and glorify God. And so until that day, though, you must carry on. Carry on in this process which God has given us to grow. To grow by growing like him. And let's resolve to do that with our tongues. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning and the gifts you've given to us. You've given us, the, given us the gift of speech and we have wasted that gift as with many others. We have squandered it and so often sinful words, hurtful words, evil words come from our lips. It ought not be this way, but such is our depravity and the sin that dwells within. But we have hope in Christ. You've sent Christ to give us forgiveness through his death on the cross and resurrection by believing in him. We can be forgiven of all of the guilt of our sin, including our sinful speech. We, we praise you for that gift. But Lord, you on top of that gave us new life, a new heart, a new tongue. It must grow, but we have now hope that we can change. We can overcome. It ought not be this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. That as we turn to you, and as we, we use the resources you've given us, we fill our mind with the truth. We renew our minds, that your spirit will then just make us grow and bear the fruit of speech that praises you and builds up others. That's our desire. And so I pray, as we are convicted this morning, that we, we go home and, and change. We, we keep on the good fight. And we, we saturate our hearts with your word. You've left it behind for a reason. Christ the Lord prayed for a reason. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I pray that does not fall on deaf ears, but becomes our, our way of life. In this we will grow. In this we will bless others. And in this we will praise you. And may that be our, our uh, resolve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.